The rest of you can turn to Psalm 119. We'll be looking, looking at verses 57 through 60 this morning. <clears throat> Last week we re-entered Psalm 119 after an eight-month hiatus studying the book of James. And this particular stanza, Psalm 119, verses 57 through 64, is a nice segue from that, that book that uh, was a collection of tests of authentic faith. How do you know if you're really in Christ? The book of James answers those questions for us. And now we come back into Psalm 119 to hopefully pick off another eight stanzas or so before we return to the New Testament. But uh, in this heth stanza, the verses 57 through 64, kind of from the concept of a segue from James into Psalm 119, we have this same concept here in these eight verses. The identifying marks of a true believer in these eight verses. So I hope that you'll uh, pay close attention today. I want to read these verses for you as we begin. <clears throat> this is, I'm going to go from 57 to 60. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. So last week I preached verse 57 to you and tried to encourage you to make God your portion, make God your all and all. Uh, even if you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, uh, you can still drift away from your first love and find yourselves enamored with the world once again. And instead of God being your portion, the world um, at times takes that place in our lives. Have you experienced that? I know that many of us have. So how are we going to make God our portion? How are we going to make God our all in all as we follow Christ? Now, let me address this um, theologically first. Uh, if we are in Christ, he is our all in all. All right, he is our portion. We have nothing else besides Christ, nothing else besides God. Whether we like it or not, we are in Christ. Whether we live like it or not, we are in Christ if we know him in God, and he's our portion. The point, though, I think here by the psalmist is getting at is, is how we can be consumed, obsessed, and possessed by God. Not whether or not we're saved, but whether or not we're following him wholeheartedly. That's the issue in focus. We see here in, in uh, verse 58, he, he entreats God for his favor. I think God's favor and having him as our portion are essentially the same thing. The psalmist's desire is simply to be a vibrant, having a vibrant, life-consuming relationship with God. That's what he wants. In verses 58 through 60, the writer tells us how we can experience this same thing. So you may be here this morning and know God. You may have uh, confessed your sins and, and by faith received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And yet you seem to struggle with this idea of really possessing God. Not in a theological sense, in a relational sense. And I want to I speak to you about this today. Uh, the life work of Jesus Christ is really the only thing 
that makes us acceptable to God. The only reason that God grants us favor, it's through Christ that we are in relationship with God at all. But we need to remember that Christian life is a journey. It's a pilgrimage. It is what it, how do you say this? It takes effort. Even though it is all up to God and Christ to accomplish his work in us, it requires our participation. And I think this is what we're seeing here uh, played out in these few verses. When the psalmist claims that God is his portion uh, and that he is seeking his favor, he is not doubting his salvation or demonstrating that salvation is based on performance. He's simply identifying what every authentic believer experiences, and that is the desire to please God with our affections and our actions. Think of Abraham, David, Paul, the Apostle John and Peter, Augustine, all these. In fact, every Christian in human history, every believer in human history has had this basic desire to please God. It's important that you understand these things and not be confused by Scripture that calls on us to do good works or to have our minds set on Christ or to be fully pleasing to God. I want to be clear that we cannot earn God's favor in a salvific sense. We, we can't earn our salvation, but we can please him in a relational sense. Listen to this verse in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So what Paul is demonstrating here in these two verses is that our relationship with God is secure in Christ. But these verses do not mean that we don't have to be concerned with pleasing God or pursuing him. This is something all Christians must pursue and consider. Now that we stand in grace, what does the rest of our Christian life look like? Do we just be indifferent to it all and, and think that, you know, I'm in, got my ticket to heaven, now just back to life as normal? I don't think so. I don't think we go back to our old self-centered paths and, you know, pursuing the old gratifications we experienced before we knew Christ. If that's the case, then you got to wonder whether or not you truly know Christ, right? So a gospel-centered response, on the other hand, to being in Christ is to entreat God's favor, to seek his pleasure with all of our hearts. A regenerated attitude towards God is a joyful yearning of soul, like a panting after that David spoke of, panting after God and pleasing him. And so in these three verses of focus today, 58 through 60, I want you to see the path with three simple stepping stones to experiencing a vibrant, God-saturated, God-is-my-portion kind of Christian life. I think that's the focus here in this text. So let's start with verse 58. I want to note that there is one point in verse 58, the second in 59, and the third in 60. These are the three stepping stones to making God your portion. The first stepping stone is praying for it. Do you see this in verse 58? I entreat your favor. Who's he talking to? Oh, to God, of course. He's asking God for his favor. 
So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we desire a vibrant Christian life? I've never heard any Christian say, no, I'd rather not have a vibrant Christian life. I'd rather just continue down this boring religious experience. No, we would all say if we truly know Christ, yes, I want a vibrant Christian life, but the next question is just as important. How badly do you want that? Don't you think our desires are powerful things? They are. Our desires can produce a lot. If we want something bad enough, we usually can find a way to get it. If you truly want to get fit, you figure out a way to get fit. If you truly want to make more money at your job, you figure out how to do that. If you truly want a friendship, you know how to do that. In Psalm 105, God tells us to seek him. Listen to what it says. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. So what does it mean to seek the Lord's favor? Don't we already possess the Lord's favor in Christ? Yes, theologically, irrevocably. That is the case. That is true. But this favor here in verse 58 is about the deepening of a genuine and intimate relationship with God. It's the pursuit of the smile of God that the psalmist is referring to. So why do we seek the Lord's favor? What's the motivation? And I'm, again, not salvifically, but relationally. If you need more reason than that God has commanded us to seek him, in other words, you're not convinced yet, just because God told me to do so, why should I? If that doesn't convince you, listen to the following. Why do we need to seek the Lord's favor? Because of the value of it. Is there anything more valuable to his creatures than his favor? The psalmist didn't think so, being David. Psalm 63.3, because your steadfast love is better than life. That hesed love that Dennis referred to, it's better than life. It's better than anything that we can come up with. So why pursue God's favor? Because it's better than anything else. Next, the, the Lord's favor is an, in, an enduring thing. God's love outlasts everything else, unlike the things that, that we are comforted with, the things that we pursue in this world. The favor of God endures. Next, the, the opposite of seeking the Lord is what? If, if you're not going to seek the Lord... What does that mean? Sin, right? <laughs> That's the only thing it can possibly mean. So if you're not going to seek the Lord's favor, it's sinful. And then finally, these are just simple reasons why we need to seek the Lord's favor. It's a demonstration of our new nature. Do you know Christ? Have you had your sins forgiven? Is the Holy Spirit of God indwelling your soul? Well, guess what happens when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart? He gives you new desires. <laughs> and one of those, the primary one, is a pursuit of God, a desire to know him more intimately, to please him more with your life. So why seek the Lord's favor? Because it demonstrates that I know Jesus. So how do you know if you're seeking this, that you're looking and pursuing intimacy with God with all your heart how do you know let me ask you a few questions to answer that do you seek communion with God more than all the other things you pursue in life do you seek God as much as you seek your own you know physical pleasure 
for example? Is he your active pursuit? If we could somehow lay out the detail of your life, would we be able to see the evidence of a genuine pursuit of God? So how does the psalmist suggest we do this? We have three stepping stones here. The first in verse 58 is simple, very simple. He prayed. So we should too. It all begins with prayer. You know, maybe your prayer is going to be very simple at the beginning. Maybe it's this. God, I want to want this. It can be that simple. Do you want to want God? Do you wish that you did pursue God with all your heart? Then that can be your prayer. As simple as that is. God, I want to want this. Help me want this. John Piper wrote a helpful book on this subject titled, When I Don't Desire God. If this is striking a, a note in your life, it might be worth picking up and reading. But the psalmist just doesn't say, hey, pray about it. You know what he does? He goes further. He tells us how to pray about it. Because sometimes we may not know. How are we supposed to pray about this? Well, let's see. What's the verse say? I entreat your favor with all my heart. It's no half-hearted request. What if, what if we don't really find this desire welling up in our soul to seek God? Listen to what Matthew, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, what if you're experiencing just the opposite? What if you're seeking all these things and not really interested in his kingdom? Then what? Well, that's what the psalm is about. In fact, that's what all, all of Scripture is about. But particularly, this psalm is included to give encouragement to us to be and do what God desires us to be and do. What is that? Fully devoted pursuers of God. That's God's intent. That's God's will for you and me, that we pursue him wholeheartedly. Because in him we find our fulfillment and joy. Seeking his favor, making him our portion. This means having our affections and appetites consumed with God and his kingdom. This is why the psalmist said, pray with all your heart. How are we supposed to go about doing this? Well, the psalmist was begging for it. You remember uh, in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with God for his favor. He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is the kind of thing we, we do in prayer. God, I'm going to keep coming back to you and asking you for the same thing. Please grant me your favor. Grant me a desire to pursue you with all my heart. And you wait, and if it doesn't happen, God, do you hear me? I want to want this. Please give me a desire and repeat endlessly until it happens. This is what the psalmist is encouraging us to do. He prayed with it with his whole heart, not just half. We know how half-hearted things turn out, don't we? Don't you love a, a kitchen when it's cleaned half-heartedly? Or the lawn when it's mowed half-heartedly? Or the birthday present that is purchased half-heartedly? Thanks for the socks. 
Yeah, we, none of us like half-hearted stuff. It shouldn't satisfy us in our pursuit of God either. In fact, it won't satisfy you in your pursuit of God. And I want you to notice he, he says that he pursues it with all of his heart. It doesn't just roll off his lips. He says it's, it's all of me here is what he's after. Diligently. And then he says not only how to pray, but what to pray. Look what he says in the very next line. Be gracious to me. That's what he's asking for. Being gracious in what regard? What do you mean? In communion with my creator. You know the most gracious thing God can do for you and me? Is to open up a way of communication, communion through Christ. That is his most gracious act towards us. By sending his son Jesus Christ to open the way that we might know God. Communion, fellowship. It's almost as simply saying, do this for me, God. This is what he's saying when he says, be gracious to me. Of course we know that the only way into communion with the creator is through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is a work of grace, and we depend on him to do so. But once you come to Christ by faith, access to God is opened up to enjoy with no limit, uninhibited. Do you remember what took place in the temple the moment Jesus died on Calvary? Remember that little happening? What happened in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holy, the most holy place? There was this veil that kept everybody out, right? Everybody except the high priest once a year. And what happened when Jesus died, that was torn open by God himself, indicating what? Free and full access to anybody who wants it. No longer just the high priest, but you and me can access God. Now the question is, are we entering? Are we going in there? It's available to us. Listen to what Paul says to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 18. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. Through whom? Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 2. Through him, Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand. So now that we have unhindered access to God, are we taking advantage of it? You know, you and I are convinced that there's a lot of other things more important than God. That's simply because we don't have clear vision. If we had clear vision, we would access God continually. He would be our portion daily, minute by minute. But we have this thing, sin, that gets in the way. We have this thing, world, that gets in the way. And we struggle to really experience this, which is, I think, why these kind of passages are included in Scripture. So <clears throat> listen to the next point here. Under this prayer, we have um, how to pray, what to pray, and what are we to expect when we come to God in wholehearted prayer? What's our expectation for those who actually come requesting this favor of God? He says, according to your promise, do this. And what is your promise? This Here's another synonym for the word of God. According to your word, God, do this for me. And what does God's word say about those who will come to him seeking him? Yeah, we know these verses, right? Jeremiah 29, 13, you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
You come seeking, guess what? God reveals himself. Remember what James said in 4.8? If you draw near to me, what? I will draw near to you. These are the promises of God's word. That's why, in fact, the psalmist used that particular synonym, your promise. He wants us to think about the promises in God's word about having this fellowship, this passion for God. Remember Hebrews 11.6, God rewards those who seek him. So do you want God to be more central in your life? Do you want to be saturated with the pursuit of God? Do you want God? Well, the question is, are you praying for it with all your heart? He continues in verse 59. Not only are we, if we want God as our portion, are we supposed to pray for it? Verse 59 indicates that we ought to strategize for it. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. That's his strategy. I think it's a good one. You know that good intentions are just that, right? Good intentions. The next stepping stone here to a vibrant, God-saturated type of Christian life is to have a strategy. Very few things happen by accident. Have you noticed that in your life? If you want to improve a relationship, it takes a strategy. You remember in junior high, you used to strategize how to get near that girl's locker? Remember there? If you figured it out, you could just cross paths. You know, you had a strategy, right? You have a strategy when you blow it with your spouse, right? You have like, uh, hey, honey, let's go out to dinner and here's a rose. That kind of thing. There's strategy to all we do that we want to accomplish. And the same with God. In our relationship with God, we must have a strategy. If we want to make him our portion, if we want to be a God-saturated Christian, we must have a strategy. What is your strategy? Well, Psalm, if you don't have one, Psalm 59, I mean, 119 verse 59 is a great one. First, what is the first step of the strategy? Look at it, verse 59. Examine your life. Verse 59, when I think on my ways, when I examine my life, that's the first step of the strategy. So what makes up our lives? Let's think about this for a second. Family, friends, work, finances, leisure. So he's examining his life, and somehow this helps him become this, this passionate person for God. How so? Listen to Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Straight your paths to where? Where's this path going? Is it to material possessions? Is it to selfish pleasure? No. These paths spoken of in Proverbs chapter 3 are paths to God. So, if you're going to walk on this path to God, if becoming a, a God-saturated individual, one whose portion is God... Are you acknowledging God in all your ways? Are your finances a reflection of a life that's committed to God? Are your friendships a reflection of the same thing? How about your marriage and family? How about your employment? Think of all the different things in your life, the different aspects of your life. Do they give indication that your life is focused Godward? That's what it means to acknowledge God in all your ways. This is, I think, 
critical, this particular step. Have a strategy. Examine your life. What's it look like? Many times there are things that get in the way of intimacy with God. If this is the case with you, there will be little to no progress in having intimacy with God until those things are addressed. As you examine the ways of your life, like he's doing here in verse 59, when he's thinking on your ways, what do you see? What if you see something out of step with God in a relationship or in your money or in your leisure time? What do you do about that? Well, I, I think it's a good practice to examine your life regularly, to honestly look in and take stock, even as often as once a week. What's this author doing about it? Look at, look at the next phrase. When I think on my ways and he sees some misstep, what's he do? I turn my feet to your testimonies. He does something about it. This is very important if you're going to have a strategy. First, inspect things. Second, change what needs to be changed. Adjust your habits. Nothing changes for the better if all you do is acknowledge something is out of place. Yeah, that really isn't right in my life. Man, I wish that would change. That doesn't help. You must adjust your habits. We all know that if we look honestly into the word of God, we will inevitably recognize areas that are out of step with his will. And if you desire to grow in godliness and live like God is your portion, you must turn your feet obediently to follow, not just your eyes and nod with your head, say, yeah, that's true, but not true of me. No, he says, I adjust my habits. I turn my feet. Many Christians acknowledge that the word of God speaks to every area of life and they, at least most Christians agree that God has a right to require certain things of us, his people, but are personally unwilling to follow, to be obedient for some reason. They agree God has a claim on our time, money and vocations, etc. But in our sinful resistance, we essentially tell God to keep his hands out of our business. Even Christians won't obey the most basic commands of Scripture. Baffling, like love one another. Well, I do. I love the people right here, you know, right, this, this group. I think you know that Jesus and the Apostle John, when they commanded these things to love one another, it was a much broader circle than your own small little group. You might say, but I want to spend time with my people, and I don't have, I'm too busy to spend time with other people. I'm too uncomfortable to spend time with people I have nothing in common with. Well, some of the church has a strategy to help you love people that you normally wouldn't. It's called small groups. You get into groups and you discover that not everybody in the group is lovely. You know, it's easy to love the lovely, right? That's, that's, that's no great accomplishment. But to love the unlovely is the point here that Jesus made. Are you loving the unlovely? Are you, are you broadening your circle of love as Jesus intended? Or are you just keeping it with this group that you're comfortable with? Next basic command of scripture that is regularly ignored is giving sacrificially. You might say, but if I do that, I won't be able to afford my toys or my leisure. And you know how much God wants me to enjoy life, so... Can't do both. 
Another basic is serving in the church faithfully. And you might respond, well, if I, I can't really serve in the church faithfully. If I do, my business is going to suffer. Or it's going to interrupt my kids' sports or interrupt my time with my kids. I can't serve faithfully. God understands. You know, all these things, these, these basic uh, commands of Scripture for us to follow as Christians are regularly ignored by Christians. So, what did the psalmist do once he'd examined his life? He turned his feet towards the Word of God. That means he aligned his life with God's will. This is, leads to verse 60, the very next point. This is the third stepping stone, acting on it. Good intentions and a good strategy are important, but if you don't follow through, they don't accomplish anything. Right? Uh, I want to lose weight, and I have a great strategy to do it. I even downloaded the app, but I just haven't started yet. Guess what? I'm not going to lose weight. <laughs> My intention and strategy may be great, but unless I act, nothing will happen. The first thing we see in verse 60 is the haste with which he acts. I hasten and do not delay. I'm sure you know this, that throughout Scripture we find beacons to help us learn what to do and what not to do, examples of how to live, how not to live. And I'm, This morning I had you guys listen to Genesis 19 read, the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rescue of Lot. You remember that story, no doubt. But God warned Lot, gave him a way of escape, but what's it say? Lot lingered. He lingered. Lot sinned by not obeying immediately. And here's something that we all need to understand spiritually and parents need to understand when raising their children. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Johnny, get out of the road. I'll do that later, Mom. <laughs> Delayed obedience is deadly to the Christian and to the child. You might erroneously think that Lot was a bad guy. Lot was ungodly. He was a selfish guy. Well, the Bible tells us that he was a true believer and a righteous man. He had the same grace from God that any believer has today. He is with Christ right now, Lot. Peter tells us all these things in 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. Lot was a righteous man. He would fit well into our church. But Lot lingered. Lot knew the evil of Sodom. He probably experienced it daily. He knew judgment was coming. He knew God would keep his word. He knew the danger was great. He knew he had a way of escape with the angels, and yet he still lingered and didn't want to leave his worldly interests behind. This is hard to believe, isn't it? Until we look in the mirror. How about us? Do we linger in our sin? Do we delay in our obedience because it's uncomfortable to change? The psalmist knew the danger of delayed obedience as well. We all know the same danger, and yet we're willing to linger in them and delay full-fledged obedience. We like church. We like our Christian friends. We're convinced of the gospel and the doctrines of salvation. We believe the Bible and know the will of God we know that Satan has it out for us. We love the Lord Jesus, 
We know that we're pilgrims and sojourners, and yet we linger, just like Lot. Friends, Genesis 19, the story of Lot is a glaring, blinking beacon to us. We might think that the prosperity and lifestyle of Sodom drew Lot away, and that would be partially true. But I want to remind you that this seemed to be a long-running pattern in his life, even before he moved to Sodom. Evidently, Lot struggled with acting on what he knew was right. He, he habitually chose the easy path. Every time we read of Lot, except for 2 Peter, it's a negative comment. We never read of him seeking God's favor, of making God his portion, as Abraham, his uncle, did regularly. He lingered, and yet he knew everything that, that Abraham knew. What's the lesson we learned from Lot? Don't delay in applying your intentions and strategy to commune with God. Don't delay. Don't linger in your indifference towards a God-saturated life just because it's uncomfortable. Be diligent in your pursuit of God. How do the psalmist do this? Through prayer, through strategy, through application. And he ends verse 60 by demonstrating a commitment to Scripture. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. A commitment to Scripture. What the psalmist did was determine to make God's word his standard, his rule, his guide, and follow it. This requires trust, faith, and Holy Spirit-initiated diligence. The prodigal son shows us how this may work for us. He was out doing his own thing until sorrow and need brought him to his senses. He realized on his own that he was lost and unsatisfied. But then those things drove him back to his father he returned and pleaded forgiveness and then did what his father told him to do. He went through the same steps that I'm showing you from Psalm 119. He prayed. He strategized. I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to say this. And then he obeyed. He didn't linger. So this morning, where's your heart, friends? Do you desire to make God your portion? Do you want a God-saturated life? Maybe you're somewhere else in that equation. Maybe you're at the point of just wanting to want. Maybe you don't want that, but you see the value of it, so you want to want. Well, wherever you are, God can take you from there. Maybe you're like the prodigal son who's making his way back to his father. Maybe you're still lingering out there in worldliness or indifference like Lot, but know what you should be doing, but haven't yet, haven't yet been persuaded to do it for different reasons. A lot of times, um, one of the reasons we delay and drag our feet in this direction is because we're afraid of what we'll encounter when we encounter God, right? Punishment, fear of punishment, 
these things that go through our minds? Well, if there's anything in Scripture that stands out above the rest, it's that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Right? This is the, this is the story of the prodigal son. He didn't fear his father, did he? He knew that his father was the answer. And so it says, to show you what our father in heaven is like, it says when his father saw him a long ways off, what did he do? He went into the house and got his belt, right? Is that what he did? No. He ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. And, of course, forgave his sin and welcomed him into the family. So if you fear coming to God because of some negative concept of God being unkind to you when you come, you misunderstand God. He's inviting you, pleading with you to come into his presence to make him your all. Friends, the stepping stones to an intimate, vibrant, all-consuming relationship with God is outlined right here, as simple as three stepping stones. Pray for it, strategize for it, and act on it. And you can begin today. And providentially, today is the Lord's Supper that we remember here at Sun Valley. And the Lord's Supper is a special time for Christians it's a time that God fulfills a promise to us to meet us here in a special way, to nurture us, strengthen us in our spiritual life. And if you've been out here, you know, away from God, not really keeping him as your all in all, as your portion, you've been lingering in the world in some way, shape, or form, God is personally inviting you back here with these elements, reminding you of the work of Christ on Calvary. Reminding you of the prodigal son and his father. So, friends, wherever you are on the scale, the spectrum of making God your portion, these elements are for you. If you don't know Christ, if you have yet to confess your sins and acknowledge your need for God and embrace the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, then I want to encourage you to do that. First and foremost, I want you simply to acknowledge that you need God and that God has provided a way for your sins to be forgiven in his son, Jesus Christ, that he came as a man. God became man, lived a sinless life, and credited that perfection to your account if you'll but receive it. And then, even though he was perfect, he died on Calvary to pay the penalty of your sin and mine. You can have your sin, sins wiped away. You can begin afresh with God right where you sit right now and be restored, just like the prodigal son. Friends, I hope you'll come this morning. I hope you'll come and receive the blessing God promises in those who will come. First to Christ and then to his table.